As the children of God, we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. We are to become in practice what we are in our position. We're holy in the sight of God. We're His beloved children. And now we're to reflect the nature that He's given to us by living a life of holiness and righteousness that brings glory to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as always, we'll open the Scripture, dig into the Word of God, and feast our souls upon the truth. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that You have been so kind to people who have hated Your name. It's amazing that You have saved us by Your grace, that You changed our hearts which were at once set against You, that at once hated You and abhorred You, and now You have given us new hearts that love You and love righteousness and hate lawlessness. You have gathered us together as an assembly of redeemed people, the church, calling us out of darkness into the marvelous light of your kingdom that we might proclaim your excellencies, that we might be a people who worship you. And that's what we've come to do this morning. We seek to do that every day. We want to live the whole of our lives for your glory, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do all to the glory of God. We want to offer our bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to you, which is our spiritual service of worship. But there is a unique sense in which you meet with your people when we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship the way you have commanded us to do in the Scripture. And so we find a great joy and delight in gathering together to do exactly what we're doing this morning. And Lord, we know that We ought to never take something like this for granted. We are reminded of that as we think of our brothers and sisters in Canada who are dealing with persecution. It's amazing that basketball players can sweat all over each other for 48 minutes, but uh, we can't sit unmasked and sing praises to the God of heaven. We pray, Lord, for that church there in Canada. We pray that you would be gracious to them and grant them a spirit of faith and perseverance, preserve them, hold them fast, whatever the consequences may be, and may you use this time of persecution to advance your kingdom there in Canada and throughout the world. Lord, we pray for our church that you would protect us from persecution if it be your will. But we know that you use all things, even what men mean mean for evil, you mean for good. And so we trust in you, we trust in your providence, and we ask that you would Do all that you do for our good and your glory as we know you will. And now, Father, as we come to open the Scripture, we're reminded of the power of the Word. We're reminded that you used the Word of God to transform the world. That's an amazing thing. You used the preached Word to transform our hearts and our lives. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is truth. And it is the Word that is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so we come now hungry for the truth. And we pray that You would give us grace to understand the glorious doctrinal realities that are here for us in the text, and You would help us to live these truths out for Your glory. And we pray these things to that end. Amen. Alright, if you have a Bible, please turn with me again to 1 John, the book of 1 John. And uh, we have finally come to the fourth chapter in our verse-by-verse study of this little letter, which means that uh, the end is in view. We still have a few months to go, but chapter four, we're finally there. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first six verses 
or at least begin to look at them. Uh, but we'll spend two or three weeks considering them in detail. But chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And after a week off, uh, to consider the glorious resurrection last week, it's good to be back to our regular sequential consecutive exposition of this wonderful epistle. And even though it's very repetitive, very cyclical, very uh, it just constantly seems to repeat itself, yet it's so rich for us, and each time... John comes back to the same themes. He gives us a deeper perspective in a new and fresh way. And so we still, even though we're not going to find out anything totally new this morning, we're going to continue to go deeper in the truths that John has already presented to us. And as an expositor, I find a certain thrill in working my way through the Bible verse by verse. And nothing feeds my own soul like expository preaching and the study that it demands. And so my goal each week is to bring you along with me as I grow in the Word so that all of us grow together as we consider the truth. And that is the hope, as always, this morning. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. And at this point, we know that John wrote the letter. We know that he wrote to the believers of Asia Minor because of the false teachers there. And he wrote the letter to provide these Christians with assurance of their salvation. That's the theme, Christian assurance. He wrote these things, John says in chapter 5, verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. The goal is that believers would have confidence in the reality of their salvation. And there is nothing more important than that. None of us want to gamble with our eternity. None of us want to jump out into the darkness and hope for the best. We want absolute confidence in our salvation. And John presents for us three tests over and over again that will provide us with that assurance if the tests are passed, if you pass the test. It reminds us of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, doesn't it? Examine yourself, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. Do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? So these are tests that John provides that enable us to do what 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to do, namely to examine ourselves. The tests, as you know, are doctrinal, moral, and social True Christians believe the truth theologically, they obey the truth morally, and they love in truth relationally. And we're very familiar with the test by now because John just keeps cycling through them over and over again. He's already went through them twice, and he's going to go through them a few more times as we work our way through the last two chapters. In the last text that we looked at two weeks ago, verses 19 through 24, a passage I entitled Blessed Assurance, we saw there... Uh, Kind of all three of the tests jammed together in one passage. John kind of gave us a summary. He'll do that. He'll go through cycles of each test, and then he comes and gives us a summary of all of them in a few verses, and then he restarts the cycle again. And that's where we're at now. This morning begins the third cycle of these tests. And as always, John begins with the doctrinal test, the theological test. This is part three of the doctrinal test. Let me read the verses to you. First John Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. First John 4, starting in verse 1. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, 
and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I know what you're thinking. You saw the word Antichrist and you thought, oh man, Jamie's about to give us another 50-minute sermon on the Antichrist. But uh, if you want to hear that, you can just go back on Sermon Audio. That's not the plan for this morning. The theme here is really summed up in verse 6, isn't it? It's distinguishing between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It is a passage about discernment. It's a passage about testing the spirits. You see, there is a seemingly infinite chasm that exists between God and man, between the Creator and the creature. And the only way that that can be bridged, the only way that the finite creature could ever have an understanding of the infinite Creator is if that Creator condescends and reveals Himself to His people. And that is exactly what God has done. God has given us divine revelation. Christianity, then, is a religion of divine revelation. It's not a religion of intuition. It's not a religion of philosophical amusement. It's not a religion of enlightenment. We don't arrive at the truth intuitively in ourselves. We don't get there because of some sort of deep meditation and zap from heaven. We don't get there through philosophical thinking. The truth is given to us because it's objectively revealed by God. God has revealed truth to us. And He's done so in a plethora of ways. Many, many ways. First, God has revealed Himself to us by way of creation. By way of creation. So that as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The universe displays the majestic glory of of its creator, just as a painting would display the artistic ability of a painter, just as the building would uh, display the ingenuity of the one who designed it, so creation displays the attributes and the glory of God. That's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. In fact, go there for a minute. Romans chapter 1, as Paul begins his glorious gospel treatise in Romans 1 through 3, He prefaces the good news with the bad news of human depravity and condemnation. And if he's going to do that, he's going to have to justify the wrath of God. How can God punish sinners? Is that fair? What about those? We've heard this. What about those across the world who've never heard about the Bible? What about them? Well, Paul deals with that in Romans 1, starting in verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, God's wrath is just when it comes upon people, because people know God. People know truth about God. Why? Because God has made the truth known to them. How? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks. In other words, people know God, they know the truth about God, because it is self-evident to man in creation. God 
has revealed Himself in creation. We know that God exists. We know that God is powerful. We know that God is gracious. We know that God is kind. We know that God is glorious because creation displays all of that to us. We're made by God. We're made in the image of God. We live in the world that God has made and therefore we all have a knowledge of our Creator. Of course, sinful man will distort this revelation. He will, as verse 18 says, suppress it, push it away, but it is revelation nonetheless. But God has also revealed Himself to us via the conscience. Via conscience. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 2. In Romans 2, Paul makes the point here that even pagan Gentiles who've never heard of the Bible, never heard of the Ten Commandments, never received the divine law and tablets of stone, even they are guilty and without excuse because they know the law of God in the heart. Look at Romans 2, verse 12. For all who've sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, the pagans, they didn't have the tablets of stone, they didn't have the Mosaic Covenant. All who've sinned without the law, they will perish without the law. All who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, even the pagan across the world knows God, knows the moral standards of God, knows the law of God, and therefore is without excuse. All of us know God and His law because He has made it known to us in what we call general revelation. General revelation. Also known as natural revelation. It's the revelation of God that comes to everybody in general through nature. This is a general revelation. But then God, of course, also makes Himself known through special revelation. This is revelation outside of the obvious revelation of creation. This is a revelation that comes directly from God to specific individuals. And God does that in many ways throughout redemptive history. Uh, First of all, God has revealed Himself in the Old Testament through what we could call theophanies. Theophanies, or you could also call them Christophanies. A theophany is a temporary manifestation of God in human or visible form. So when you read the Old Testament and you Get to Genesis 32 and you see the angel of the Lord wrestling with Jacob. Or you go to Genesis 18 and you find three visitors coming to Abraham and one of them is God. That is a theophany. It is a temporary manifestation of God in human form. All of which serves as a glorious preview of what was to come in the incarnation when Christ would, God would become a real man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that is of course the clearest revelation of all. The clearest revelation of God comes to us in the Incarnation, doesn't it? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, the One who is Himself the image and Word of God. The clearest revelation comes to us through the Incarnation. Of course, God also revealed Himself throughout history through prophets and apostles and preachers and teachers. And finally, that revelation comes to us in a complete form on the pages of the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, the Holy Bible. That revelation is complete. But the point of all of that is simply this. Throughout redemptive history, God has revealed Himself to His people. 
In the Old Testament, He sent prophets. In the New Testament, He sent apostles. And even today, He sends preachers and teachers who explain and clarify that self-revelation to His church. The problem is that not everyone who claims to speak for God really is speaking for God. Not everyone who comes as a supposed messenger from heaven is a true messenger, a true teacher. Not everyone claiming to be from God really is. There are false teachers who, like their father the devil, distort the Scriptures to their own destruction, their own damnation. And that's what John warns his readers about here. False prophets, those who would alter the truth just like their father Satan. Those who would purvey lies. And the Gnostic heretics in John's day were a classic case in point. They were plaguing the churches of Asia Minor, claiming to speak for God, claiming to be from heaven, but in reality they were emissaries of Satan, messengers of hell, distorting the truth and damning all who believe their lies through their deluding influence. They were liars propagating their own counterfeit version of the Christian faith. Of course, there are many such false teachers that exist in our own day on every side. And in light of that, it is imperative for us that we be discerning. We aren't to be gullible. We aren't to be naive. We aren't to be simple or foolish. We must be wise. We must be discerning. We must be prudent. We must do what John says here. We must test the spirits to see if they are from God. We aren't to believe just anybody. We're not to believe every person who claims to be a spokesman for God. We must put them to the test. In other words, we need to test the doctrinal content of those who teach to us to determine if they are true teachers or false teachers. But how do we do that? How do we distinguish between a true teacher and a false teacher? What is the standard by which we measure such teachers? Well, verses, that's true, Scripture, I heard somebody say Scripture. Uh, the Word of God is the standard, right? And in 1 John 4, 1-6, through 6, in the Word of God, John provides us with a test. He gives us criteria by which we can test the spirits. So in the passage, first we're going to see a command to test the spirits. Secondly, we'll see the cause for testing the spirits. And thirdly, we'll see the criteria for testing the spirits. The command, the cause, and the criteria. So first of all, we see the command. The command to test the spirits. Look at verse 1. And this is really what we'll camp out this morning is in verse 1. This will be a kind of an introduction to the rest of the passage for next week. John in verse 1 writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Once again, John begins this section of Scripture with a familiar term, a term of affection, a term of love, a term of endearment, he calls them his beloved. His beloved. These were saints who were loved. They were loved by God, and they were loved by John. In other words, John loved those to whom he wrote. John loved those to whom he ministered, those to whom he was a shepherd. And it's out of his love for them that he warns them about the danger of false teaching. You know, it isn't popular today to call out false teachers and expose heretics. We live in a day of tolerance, a day of acceptance. The only sin today is the sin of not accepting other people. 
our culture is tolerant of everything except for intolerance. And so it isn't popular today to say these people are liars. We live in a postmodern world where there's just no absolute truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. It's all subject to interpretation anyway. How could you say that someone was a false teacher? So it isn't popular, but John does it anyway. John calls out the false teachers. Why? Because he loves those to whom he writes. And in the same way, any faithful pastor or any faithful shepherd who loves those to whom he ministers must expose error. He must warn his people of false teaching. He must do what Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, namely to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. There's the twofold aspect of every ministry. Exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. John Calvin put it this way, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The Scripture, he says, supplies him with the means for doing both. That's exactly right. Every faithful pastor has to have a twofold ministry. Two aspects, a positive and a negative. Not only must he teach, he must expose. Not only must he instruct, but he must warn. Not only is he to clarify, but he's to confront and correct. That is the twofold ministry of anyone who loves the flock to whom he ministers. And that's why, as I've told you before, there's such a polemical thrust to my preaching. Surely you recognize that. I'm, perhaps you hear me talk about Roman Catholicism a lot, or you hear me use the word hell a lot. But I do that because I love the people of God. I do that, like John, because I love those that God has given me as a flock. And so out of a love for the church, I must warn you of error and of dangerous teaching that poses a real threat to your spiritual life. That's exactly what John does here. In love, he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We are to test spirits. Now what in the world is John referring to here by spirit? We don't walk around and see a bunch of spirits flying here and there and have to test them. What what does he mean? Well, there are three options that have been proposed in the commentaries. First of all, the Greek word spirit is the word pneuma. Pneuma, it's where we get the English word pneumonia. And it means breath or wind or spirit. And usually it just refers to the immaterial essence. Invisible immaterial essence. So there are three options that are proposed. The first option is that by spirit, John is referring to the person behind the te- or the spirit behind the teaching. He's referring to the source behind a person's message. In other words, every person who claims to teach for God is either teaching from the Holy Spirit or demonic spirits. Every person who claims to teach for God is either teaching from the Holy Spirit or demon spirits. That's the source. It either originates in God or in Satan. The second option is that John here is referring to the person's human spirit. He's saying every person, every human spirit who comes to you teaching is to be tested. A third option is that John is using the word spirit metaphorically to refer to the message itself, like we might talk about the spirit of the age. So John's just referring to the teaching, the message itself. So which one is it then? Well, I think it's a combination of all three. Essentially, here's what 
John is saying. We must examine every person's message carefully to see whether or not this person is teaching from the Holy Spirit or Satan. We must test every person's message carefully to distinguish between the Holy Spirit and satanic spirits. And context is important here. Because what is it that leads John into this discussion of testing the spirits? Well, you have to go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 24, John made his first explicit reference to the Holy Spirit in the letter. And here's what he says in verse 24. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. God, if you're a Christian, has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart, and that Spirit provides assurance that you belong to God. He provides assurance of your salvation. And now, having mentioned the Holy Spirit that comes from God, he's quick to point out the fact that there are other spirits in the world. There are many other spirits, and this other spirit is referred to in verse 3 as the spirit of the Antichrist. He's referred to the spirit of error in verse 6. Throughout the passage, he's contrasted with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. So the spirit of error, then, is a reference to Satan and his demonic host. It's a reference to both the devil and his minions, his demonic minions. Every person, every human spirit that comes to you with a message is either influenced by the Holy Spirit or is influenced by demonic spirits. That's what John is saying. One of those two spirits are the ultimate source behind every message. There is no neutrality. It's either from God or it's not. So John says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So essentially then, what John is telling us is don't be gullible. Don't be foolish. Don't believe that everybody's telling you the truth. You can't believe everything you read on Facebook, right? You can't believe every meme you see. You can't believe everything you hear. You have to examine the message carefully to discern whether or not that teacher is from God if he's teaching from the Holy Spirit. This is a call then for discernment. And unfortunately, that's an important call in our day because many Christians lack that discernment. It's not uncommon today to hear evangelicals say, well, Roman Catholics are my brother, Uh, Mormons, they're my brothers and sisters, they believe the gospel, and hey, we'll even include the Jehovah's Witnesses in there, and they're all Christian. That's a lack of discernment. And Scripture is constantly calling us to be discerning. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 4, One sign of spiritual immaturity is a lack of discernment. A lack of discernment. In Ephesians 4, Paul speaks of spiritual children, that is the immature, as those who are tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're unstable. They're all over the place. You ever met a Christian like that? Every week he's telling you something new. He's always got his new theory. He's never stable and rooted in the truth. But on the contrary... You go back to 1 John chapter 2, there John says the young men, that is those who have experienced some level of spiritual growth, they are the ones who are strong in the Word and have thus overcome the evil one. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is the ability to discern. It's being strong in the Word of God and overcoming satanic deceptions. And so it's important then that we know the truth. 
You know, they say that the best way to detect counterfeit money is how? Know the real thing, right? Know what the real thing looks like. The best way to detect spiritual heresy is to know spiritual truth. So we need to be masters of the Bible. We need to be a people of the book. We need to know the truth. We need to train ourselves to be discerning. Because false teachers prey on those who aren't discerning. They prey on those who are gullible. That's what Paul told the church at Rome in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. He says, look out for false teachers. Those who cause division in the church with their false doctrine, mark them out. Look out for them. Turn away from them. Then he says in verse 18, For such men are slaves. Sounds very tolerant, doesn't it? Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That is exactly what a false teacher does. Smooth and flattering speech. Sounds convincing. Has very good philosophical and sentimental arguments. And who are, they, who are the ones they prey on? The unsuspecting. Those who don't suspect a thing. Those who aren't discerning. Those who don't know much truth. Those who don't know their Bibles. Is that you this morning? Are you gullible and easily deceived? Are you immature? Are you tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine? Or are you strong in the Word? Are you maturing in the faith? Are you able to discern truth and error? Are you able to overcome the evil one's deception? You see, if a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they find out that you know the truth, guess what they're going to do? They're gone. They're going to mark you down and never come back. Because you're not their type. You're not what they're looking for. They're looking for the ones that are easily deceived. They're not looking for an argument. They're looking for someone who believes everything they have to say. That's exactly what they do. So may it never be that we would be those kinds of people. The people that are easily, foolishly deceived. May Christ as King Baptist Church be comprised of a people who are strong in the Word of God. Proverbs 14.15 says, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. That's what the naive does. That's what the naive people do. They believe anything, everything, everybody. But a wise person examines a person's teaching carefully so as to discern whether or not it's true or false, whether or not it's from God or Satan. True believers then, those who are mature and wise... They have what John MacArthur calls a healthy skepticism. They are what Daniel Aiken calls doctrinal detectives. They're always like Sherlock Holmes, on the lookout, examining everything carefully. They are like the noble-minded Bereans of Acts 17.11 who search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. They're always discerning. That's exactly what Paul called the church at Thessalonica to do, to be discerning. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read this. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. You hear someone preaching and teaching, what do you do? You don't automatically despise it. You don't write it off. But you don't automatically believe it either. You examine it, you test it, 
you put it under close scrutiny and you seek to see if it's from God or not. So we must then be discerning. So that's the command. That's the command. We are to test the spirits. But secondly, we see the cause for testing the spirits. What is it that makes testing the spirits necessary? What's the reason? Why do we have to be discerning? Well, verse 1, the latter half of verse 1 answers that for us. Look at verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because, here's the cause, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Why do you need to test the spirits? Because the world is filled with false teachers, messengers of Satan himself, who would seek to deceive you with theological error. Those energized by Satan, messengers of Satan, who are influenced by him to propagate doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Teachings that originate in satanic deception. You don't get the idea when you read the New Testament or the Bible in general that doctrine just isn't important. You don't get that idea, do you? You have to get that from Christian music, and Christian t-shirts, and Christian cliches. You don't get it from the Bible. Because the Bible is constantly warning about false doctrine. Constantly warning us about error. And I've told you before that the most dangerous form of false teachers, they're not the ones who outright deny Christianity. right? They're not the atheists or the Hindus, the Buddhists, or the Muslims. The most dangerous false teachers are those who claim to be Christian, but in reality are the vicars of Satan. Those who alter Christian doctrine. Those who say, hey, we believe in Jesus, but He's Michael the Archangel. Uh, we believe in Jesus, He's the Son of God. By that we mean He's the first created being, and He's a God. They use Christian lingo, they use the Bible, they claim to be Christian, and all they deliver is satanic lies. And so we have to be on the lookout for such error. We have to be discerning. If not, you'll be caught in their trap. I told you before, I had a childhood friend of my dad's who uh, married, was a Baptist growing up, married a Jehovah's Witness, and guess what he became? Jehovah's Witness. You've got to be on the lookout. You've got to be discerning. Because Satan distorts the truth. And this issue of distorting the truth, it goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis 3 for a moment. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here we find Adam and Eve living in the garden, uh, paradise. They're in perfect communion with God. Perfect fellowship with their Creator. And this is the context in which the enemy comes to tempt them. Right here in the garden. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Notice that, he's crafty. He doesn't just come announcing with his trumpet he's a false teacher. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. What's he doing here? Deceiving. He's distorting the Scripture. He's not outright denying it at this point. He's just altering what God had said. This is similar to what God had said, but it's not what God had said. In verse 2, the woman tells us what God really said. So he says, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. 
The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Apart from the touch it part, he did tell them they couldn't eat from it. Just one tree. Satan says you can't eat from any tree? Is God that harsh? Casting doubt in their minds. Casting doubt on the Word of God. By twisting it just a little bit. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die? Now what's he doing? Outright denying the Word. But notice the progression. First he twists it. Then it's an outright rejection. That's how people go, isn't it? They start off pretty well. They're in good churches. They believe the truth. And then they become liberal. And now they don't really believe the Bible is all the Word of God. And then before you know it, they're atheist and so on and so forth. It starts with a little twisting of the Scripture and then it's an outright denial of it altogether. You will not die. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. God's an enemy here. God's jealous. God doesn't want to share the goods with you. You're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So all the way back in the garden, you have this pattern established. There are two options. There is the Word of God, and there is the lie of Satan. And today, that is still the same case. Adam and Eve could have believed God's truth, or Satan's deception. And of course, we know they chose Satan's lie, and it delivered not what it promised, it delivered death and judgment. And that's still the case. Even today, if you believe the lie of Satan, what it delivers is death. Right? What it delivers is judgment. So ever since the garden, Satan has been counterfeiting the truth. Sending his messengers into the world to sow his deceptions. Paul expressed that same concern for the church at Corinth. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul, like the Apostle John, loved those to whom he ministered. And so he was concerned that they not be deceived by false teaching. And he was dealing with a group of people who called themselves super apostles, eminent apostles. And they were seeking to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. And they were propagating lies. And so Paul had to defend that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3, Paul warns these believers of this deception. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 3. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, there it is again, he's sneaky, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He was afraid that the Corinthians would succumb to the same satanic deception that got Eve in the garden. He was afraid that she would be bewitched, just like Eve. And in verse 4, he elaborates on this deception. He says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You put up with it. You put up with false teachers distorting the truth about God, about Christ, about the Spirit, about the Gospel, about salvation, and you just put up with it. It reminds me of the many professing evangelicals in our day that are totally fine holding hands with Roman Catholics at an abortion clinic, doing ministry with the emissaries of Satan himself, 
Those who deny the truth of the gospel. And you just put up with it. They distort the gospel. And you just bear with it beautifully, he says. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because Satan's messengers are crafty like their father, the devil. They don't come with the trumpet saying, guys, we're here to distort the truth. Satan didn't even do that. Satan didn't come into the garden and say, hey guys, there's no God. They never would have bought that. Satan didn't come into the garden and say, hey, I'm God. They wouldn't have bought that either. He was sneaky. That's what he does today. I'm surprised though that a snake, because most women are scared of snakes. That's... That's a good point. Huh? That's, that's, uh, I guess that's why they're scared of snakes now. I don't know. <laughs> this must have been a nice creature. He might have had arms and legs, by the yes. way, in the Old Testament. So maybe he looked a little nicer. But that's a good point. So Paul knew that false teachers are deceptive. In fact, look how he describes them later in the chapter, starting in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's what they do. They disguise themselves. They masquerade as God's messengers. They're Satan's messengers. They pretend to be the people of God. In reality, they're sons of hell that would deceive you and damn you with their lies. And so we must be on the lookout. So Satan's most dangerous lies are propagated not by atheists, not by false religionists, but by cultists. Those who claim to be Christian but deny essential Christian doctrines. They are crafty, just like their father, the devil. Back to 1 John 4 now. So we must look out for their deception. John knew that. So John, out of his law for the flock, says, test the spirits because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Old Testament issued that same warning over and over again. I'll just give you one example. I'll read this to you. Jeremiah 29, 8 and 9 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who were in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. That's a warning directly from God. Directly from God. Just like in Jeremiah's day, so it is in our day. People who claim to be sent from God but are really messengers of Satan would deceive you with their lies. And we must discern. We must test the spirits. And it's not just the Old Testament that issues this warning. Just about every prominent figure in the New Testament did as well starting with our Lord Himself. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, 15? He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. That's the issue. They masquerade themselves. They impersonate sheep. They claim to be believers. They impersonate shepherds. Often, the most dangerous false teachers hold offices of authority in the church. They're pastors and teachers. Don't even just believe my word. Any true teacher from God is totally fine with you putting their doctrine under scrutiny and testing it. One mark of a false teacher is he doesn't ever want to be questioned. He'll say things like, touch not the Lord's anointed. That's a total misuse of that verse, isn't it? That's what they do. But Jesus says they'll impersonate shepherds. They're claiming to be sheep. Inwardly, they're devils, wolves seeking to devour the flock. The good news is Jesus says we can recognize them, didn't He? You will know them by their what? The fruits. 
You'll know them by both their doctrinal content and their behavioral conduct. Their doctrinal content and their behavioral conduct. That's why many false teachers are often falling into sexual perversion and immorality and greed. They have these huge falls. Why? Because they're false teachers in it for the wrong reason. In it for monetary value and personal glory. In it for sordid gain. Jesus says, look out for people like that. Look out for them. But not only did Jesus issue this warning, so did the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy 4.1 we read this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's where it comes from. People leave the truth and embrace doctrines that are originated in satanic deception and demonic spirits. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And this isn't going to get any better. This isn't just going to go away. In 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul said, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It just seems to get worse and worse as God removes His restraining grace and His people fall prey to deception. They grab and gather teachers for themselves that scratch their itching ears and tell them whatever they want to hear. That's why in our day, we some of the most biggest megachurches in America are filled with unbelievers who gather people like Joel Osteen to tell them everything they want to hear. False teachers that just scratch your itching ears and never rain on your parade. You won't ever hear the word hell. You won't ever hear the word judgment. You won't ever hear false teaching called out because that's not popular. That's what sells in America. That's what sells in the world. That's what sells to unbelievers. And so that's what false teachers give you. So Paul was right. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Peter also warned about false teachers. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Just a book to the left. 2 Peter 2. Peter, like John, like Paul, like Jesus, like the Old Testament prophets, he loved those to whom he ministered, and so he warns them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 1. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, in the Old Testament, just as there will also be false teachers among you, watch this, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Do you notice a common motif here, a common theme? They're secret. They're crafty. They do it in a subtle way. They secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. That's their major error. They deny Christ. We'll see that later. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They deceive with error. The good news is they will be destroyed. God will wipe them out on the day of judgment. So there are false teachers. You can go back to chapter 4 now. 1 John. There are false teachers. They're influenced by Satan and they propagate doctrines of demons and they will be destroyed. But all who believe their lies will be destroyed with them. And so we must be on the lookout for those who would seek to take us with them to destruction. We must be discerning. The question then is, how do we do that? 
We have a command to test the spirits. We have a cause for testing the spirits. But how do we do it? How do we discern between a true teacher from God and a false teacher from Satan? What's the standard? Well, in verses 2 through 6, John provides us with criteria. We see the criteria for testing the spirits. And there's a twofold test. There's a Christological test. And there's a Bibliological test. A Christological test and a Bibliological test. We don't have time to look at them this morning, but briefly I'll give you a little bit of a cliffhanger so you'll have to come back next week. First of all, the Christological test. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. You want to know how to discern between a true teacher and a false teacher? What do they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? Every false teacher in some way denies the truth about Christ, either His person or His work, either His full deity, His true humanity, or His saving sufficiency. But in some way, every false teacher denies the truth about Christ. True teachers, on the other hand, who teach from the Holy Spirit, believe and affirm and proclaim the truth about Christ. And we'll consider that in more detail next time. All of that then becomes a wonderful introduction to next week. But there's a command to test the spirits. There's a cause for testing the spirits, the false teachers. And there are criteria by which we test the spirits. And the first one is the Christological test. What do they say about Christ? That will be the focus of our study next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we be discerning. May we be on the lookout. May we test the spirits in hopes that we might avoid deception and bring honor and glory to the God of truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word as always. It always speaks to us with such clarity and such power, such authority. We know that false teachers have gone out into the world. We know they're seemingly everywhere. And we know that they're crafty and subtle just like their father, just like their sender. We know they masquerade themselves as if though they've come from You, and in reality they've come from hell. And we know, Lord, that if we fall prey to their lies, like Adam and Eve, we'll fall into spiritual and eternal death as well. But our hearts are confident not that we ourselves are sufficient within ourselves, but that our adequacy comes from You, and that You're the God who has given us the Spirit to detect error. You're the God who has given us the truth in the Scripture. You're the God who will preserve us and hold us fast so that nothing can snatch us out of Your hand. And we take comfort in that. Lord, we know that we won't be deceived if we're Your people because You'll keep us from that deception. But You keep us through our own Spirit-empowered efforts, our own Spirit-empowered discernment. And so I pray You would help us to do that. Help us to be on the lookout. Help us to be constantly testing the spirits, examining things carefully to see whether or not they're true. And I pray that You would help us not only to be protected from error, but to be empowered to proclaim the truth to the world for Your glory. And these things we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.